Uh, find your seats. <clears throat> it is uh, so good to be here with you guys uh, this morning. If today is your first time or first time back in a long time to church or maybe you're tuning in online right now for uh, the first time in a while, I uh, just want to say welcome. We are thrilled that you're here. We're excited you're tuning in. And uh, no matter your background, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, uh, we want you to know that you are welcome here at Adventure Church, you don't have to live up to some moral code in order to belong here. Uh, you are accepted just, just as you are. Uh, today we're going to keep going in this series that Brad kicked off about two weeks ago called Man Up, where we have been uh, challenging men to embrace their role, okay, their masculine role in society and in family and in the various relationships that we have. And one thing that we've been learning is that true masculinity is about taking responsibility and running towards it rather than away from it, which is what we tend to do from time to time. If you didn't get a chance to uh, listen to Brad's message last week, I want to encourage you to do so. It was one of the best messages that I've heard uh, on masculine, uh, masculinity and taking responsibility as men. And so do yourself a favor. If you missed that, go back and uh, listen Download it, and uh, you will be uh, very blessed uh, because of it. Um, <clears throat> now, in case this isn't clear yet, in case this hasn't been made known uh, in this series, I just want to throw this disclaimer up front today, okay? Uh, what you are going to hear today is very politically incorrect, okay, and somewhat controversial. It may be the most politically incorrect thing that you hear in quite some time, all right? Now, the thing is that you, you can clap for that. That's fine, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you may not be clapping at the end, but uh, <laughs> um, the thing is that if all we cared about was attracting more people to this place or all we cared about was numbers, we certainly wouldn't do a series like this. And, and yet when we look at the landscape of our culture, the stakes are just too high. The, the greater risk isn't talking about manhood. The greater risk is not taking this seriously uh, enough. And so just knowing that up front as we dive into, uh, <clears throat> as we dive into God's word, the, the most prevalent war that exists today is the battle for men's hearts. Now, just a few years ago, the American uh, Psychological Association released for the first time a set of guidelines for counselors and therapists working with men who struggle with their masculinity. And the article states that tradi traditional masculine ideology prevents men from living as males. According to the APA, embracing this traditional view of manhood is directly linked to, according to them, aggression and violence, leaving boys and men at a disproportionate risk for school discipline, academic challenges, and health disparities, including cardiovascular problems and substance abuse. The article would go on to say, men are overrepresented in prisons, are more likely than women to commit violent crimes, or are at a greater risk of being a victim of violent crime. And so the thing is, our culture is asking the right questions. What does true manhood look like? And yet what happens when the answer falls short of what our creator says is right, true, and best? You see, the stakes are, are way too high. There's too much on the line here. Men, the people in your life will be directly impacted by how you respond to this series. It's up, it's up to you. It's up to us. The, the ball is in our court. 
Now, when I mention the name Jesus, all of us tend to picture something differently. There are a lot of versions of Jesus out there. Uh, and your version of Jesus that you hold in your mind uh, has been formed over several years based upon what you've been taught, what you've maybe experienced, the type of church that, that you've attended. And there, there are many versions of Jesus alive today. And you remember that scene in uh, Talladega Nights when they're praying at the dinner table and they describe which version of Jesus that they like best? It was the great scholar, Cal Naughton Jr., who said it so perfectly and eloquently. He said, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. <laughs> now, I don't know what version of Jesus you like to hold on to, but one thing we've been seeing in the series is that Jesus was the ultimate man. He embodied masculinity. One of the biographies of Jesus, according to Luke, said it like this. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so contrary to how Jesus is sometimes portrayed, he wasn't some weak, effeminate guy with long, flowing hair holding up the peace sign as he walked down the street. And so at the risk of offending people, we've gone from seeing Jesus as the Lion of Judah that he's, that he's described as to more emphasizing the role of him being the Lamb of God. Now, most versions of Jesus that we hold on to have been diluted, have been watered down, have been feminized to fit our modern framework. I mean, after all, if you think about it, a passive Jesus is much more manageable. A passive Jesus is not so invasive. A passive Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, is tolerant of sin. A, to a passive Jesus doesn't mind how you define truth. It's up to you. You live your truth. A passive Jesus is okay with diluting gender distinctions. A passive Jesus is nice, is cute, is cuddly, and yet when we look at scripture, is also inaccurate and false. And so what does the true Jesus look like? No wonder why so many of us men are confused about what it means to be a man, because we're following after a version of Jesus that's been diluted. Now this is just a theory, but I'm right, all right? I think many people walk away from Jesus because someone sold them a bad version who isn't strong enough to handle the crap in their life. You see, the way you view Jesus determines how you respond to Jesus. And let's be honest, most men don't follow weak leaders. Many of us are failing at our roles as men because we're following the wrong Jesus. Now, there are four facets of manhood that we're going to explore in the next few weeks in this series, okay? We're going to see how, as men, we're called to be kings, we're called to be warriors, we're called to be uh, wise men and lovers. And so today, we're going to be tackling what it looks like for us as men to embrace our role as kings. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, uh, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't own a Bible, I believe we have some Bibles here, uh, but go ahead and turn there now. 1 Samuel's in the front half of the Bible in the Old Testament, okay? And uh, if you've spent any time in church before, uh, this is perhaps one of the most popular stories in Scripture. It's one of the most famous in, in the Bible. We're going to look at the moment that a guy by the name of David fought a massive giant named Goliath. And some of you right now, okay, you're wondering... How in the world does this tie in with Jesus? 
Hang with me, okay? Just wait. All right, David would grow up to be the king over all of Israel, but it hasn't happened yet with where we pick up in our story. He's just this shepherd boy. He's the youngest in his entire family, and he's used to being overlooked. He's used to being bullied and, and abused and dismissed. Pick up with me in verse 1, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Here's what we're told. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sychok, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sychok and Azekai and Ephes and uh, you try saying these names, okay? Verse 2, you can read it. Verse 2, <laughs> and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain of the other side with a valley right between them. Okay, so, so here, here's the scene that we see playing out. There's a standoff taking place between the Israelite army and the Philistine army. You have one army on one mountain and another army on the adjacent hill. The Philistines, you have to understand, were a bad bunch of dudes, okay? They were like the modern-day drug cartels that everybody feared. And so in, in the midst of picking a fight with the nation of Israel, their fiercest warrior walks down the mountain and starts trash-talking. He yells out a challenge. Take a look at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. Do you notice how detailed scripture gets? The shaft, <clears throat> the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul, who was the king at the time? Choose a man for yourselves, Goliath says, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, <coughs> then you shall be our servants and serve us. So we have to understand what, what's at stake for the Jewish people here, all right? They were at risk being conquered by the Philistines. Their reputation was on the line. The ancient world would have seen them as weak. And since God had chosen the Jewish people, the Israelites, to be his representatives in the world, the name of God, Yahweh, who the Jewish people served, that was at stake as well. So God's reputation's on the line here. Now, no Jew in the right mind wanted to duel with Goliath. His trash talk put chills down the spine of every Israelite soldier. Not only was Goliath massive, but he was fearless. Defeating him seemed absolutely impossible. Nobody could take him down. That's why verse 11 says that when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now throughout the entire army... Nobody was willing to step up, man up, and fight Goliath. We're told that Goliath did this every day for about 40 days. All right, they were desperate for just one guy to stand up and take on Goliath. If someone didn't man up, there would be dire consequences. And whether you see it or not, the same is true today. 
We are a world desperate for men to stand up and take the initiative. Some of, for some of us, our wives wake up every single day hoping today is going to be the day that, that you go to battle for her. And your children want to know, am I, am I worth fighting for? Am I worth going to battle for? Your girlfriend wants to know, will you finally take the initiative, put a ring on my finger and seal the deal here? Who is going to be man enough to step up and, and fight? Now here's the thing, somebody is going to fight for the people that we love most in this life. Somebody will. The question is, will it be you? Will it be me? Or will you remain in the camp and play it safe? Or will you step out and, and fight? You see, true manhood is standing up even when no one else will. It's about running in when everybody's running out. And this is precisely when the writer brings David into the story. I want you to pay attention to how he's introduced. Look at verse 14. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. All right, so right off we're told David is the youngest in his family. By show of hands, any of you also the youngest in your family? Okay, a few of us, several of us. That's good. That meant that he got stuck doing the worst chore, and that was feeding sheep. This was not a glamorous task. Now, I, for one, can identify with David because I'm the youngest of five in, in my family. And looking back, I did a whole lot of things. Don't repeat this, but I did a lot of things just to get attention. Okay? And I'm sure David was in that position, too. Uh, I'll never forget uh, the summer going into my senior year of high school. Uh, me and all my buddies were gathered at my house. We were bored one night. We didn't know what to do. We had kind of been doing the same thing over and over again. We were bored. And you know it's never, it's never a good formula for a bunch of high school guys to be together at night, unsupervised, and for boredom to set in. You know this is not going to end well, right? And so I decided this was the perfect opportunity to do what I had always dreamt of doing. And that was filling up water balloons and throwing them at cars. And so that's what we did. We went to Walgreens, bought some water balloons, and filled them up, went to this very strategic location, hid behind a massive oak tree, and started just beaming cars left and right with water balloons. And i got to be honest with you, just straight talk, it was a blast. I mean, we had so much fun doing this, especially when convertibles drove by, and we nailed them, and, you know, and a couple times accidentally hit the driver, they would get wet, you know, and they didn't know what hit them, and then we would run off, and nobody found us, and this got to be rather addicting, because we didn't just do it one night, but we started doing it the next night as well, and then the next night, and three weeks later, we found ourselves still doing this every night. And word had kind of spread all throughout my high school community at the time. At one point in time, we had over 30 people that had joined us in throwing water balloons at cars. You know this isn't going to end well, right? Well, on the last night of doing this, we decided to go out just one more time. And that happened to be the time that the police came got their spotlights out, found us, threatened to tase us, put us in handcuffs, and <laughs> because we were at my house, they put us in handcuffs, and it was my responsibility to get my parents, this is one o'clock in the morning, the police station tried calling my parents, but because of internet back then, it was blocking the line, so they couldn't get through, so the police chief came up to me and says, well, Mr. Garcia, you live at this house, so it's going to be on you to go upstairs and wake up your parents. I'm like, well, can you at least take the handcuffs off? Nope. 
the worst part is I walk up to my parents' room, I'm in handcuffs, kind of open the door backwards like this, tell them what had happened, and it happened to be on the night of their anniversary. <laughs> that was not a good night. I imagine David did some similar things like that just to get attention because that tends to be a common thread for youngest in the family. I've put my parents through a lot over the years. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing about David. David knew his job wasn't his identity. All right, there's no doubt that being the youngest caused him to feel a little bit insecure, but he knew he was more than that. He, he, didn't, he didn't see himself as merely a victim. And so let's, let's lean into this for just a second, okay? What's happened in your life that you use as a rationale to not be the man that God has called you to be? Let me ask it like this. In, in what ways do you play the victim card? Let's get a little bit more personal. What wasn't your fault that is now your excuse? What wasn't your fault that maybe is now your excuse? You didn't have a dad growing up. Your, your dad wasn't around. Your mom was an alcoholic. You were picked on by older siblings. You, you're still angry over something that happened to you. You shouldn't have gotten pulled over, but, but, but you did. You, you, shouldn't have, you, you should have had someone show up, show you what masculinity is, but, but you didn't have that. You didn't mean to get addicted, but it happened anyways. You accidentally got her pregnant. You shouldn't have been fired. She shouldn't have left you. You see, there are plenty of things that, that I've done or things that I've gone through that, get, that I think gives me a pass on stepping up like a man. And yet what happens when we don't acknowledge it or deal with it, we then give it the power to define us. You see, the excuses that you give to avoid responsibility is believing the lie that you're a victim. You see, the source of your scars, whatever that may look like for you, the source of your scars says something like this. You aren't good enough. You don't measure up. You're weak. Nobody wants to follow you. Sound familiar, guys? Joseph Goebbels once said it like this, that if you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it, and then you will come to believe it yourself. Doesn't that describe the way a lot of us talk to ourselves? We repeat those lies about who we are often enough, and you not only start to believe it, but then you begin to live it. Back to our story, we can't overemphasize enough that, that nobody aspired to be a shepherd back in this culture. This wasn't a job you'd highlight on your resume, but regardless of the shame or excuses from an early age, David showed up to work. Nothing was above him. David's older brothers were part of the Israelite army, and so one day Jesse, the dad, sends David to check on them and take them food. And so while David is there running errands, Goliath walks out to the valley and starts trash-talking again. Skip down to verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so David immediately identifies a void that needed to be filled. He couldn't help but wonder why nobody was man enough to step up and challenge Goliath. I mean, after all, the name and reputation of the Lord God Yahweh was at stake. And so one of David's brothers spoke up. Look at verse 28. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's brother was kindled against David and said, why, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see this battle. 
And so here you've got an older brother talking down to a younger brother. He was being criticized for just abandoning the sheep, and he assumed the worst. Eliab insinuated that David was irresponsible. And though he was simply being obedient to what his dad had asked him to do, David was being misrepresented and misunderstood. One scholar goes so far to say that this interaction demonstrates that David was abused by his older brothers. The king at the time, Saul, hears that David had pretty much called out the army for refusing to fight Goliath and him calling them out was as loud as a wood chipper. And so David tells Saul that he was willing to fight Goliath. And so Saul responds in verse 33 by saying this, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. You're little, you're tiny, you're scrawny, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Verse 34, But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a, or, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And so evidently, David wasn't just some scrawny kid. I mean, anybody in here, can you ever say that you've killed a lion or bear? I mean, you know this guy was jacked, but he had this confidence of who was with him. And it's precisely at this moment in the story that our view of Jesus is challenged. What do I mean by that? Before we go any further, we, we need to read the rest of the story in view of all of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, hang with me for a second because it's critical that we connect some dots here. All right, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right, a couple thousand years later, Jesus showed up and told his followers this, I and the Father are, are one. And so in theory, what that means is anywhere in Scripture that mentions God or Lord God or Father can be replaced with the name of Jesus. Hebrews 13, 8 then tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that means that, that Jesus was present for the battle between David and Goliath. And so if that's true, if that's true, how might we see Jesus differently than the one that we've learned about in Sunday school growing up? Well, verse 37. And David said, Jesus who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and Jesus be with you. So David took on this challenge because he knew Jesus was with him. And, and when you see Jesus for the warrior king that he is, you can go into any combat situation with confidence. Check out what happens next, verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had tested them. Then David said to Saul, look, here's the deal, man. I cannot go out there with these for I have not tested them. And so David put them all off. All right, so David wasn't comfortable pretending to be somebody that he wasn't. Saul's armor ends up being more of a hindrance than it was a help, and so he declined to wear it. Here's the thing. It takes just as much courage to be yourself as it does to head into battle without armor. You see, the way you see yourself determines how you live. Maybe you feel like you're wearing someone else's armor trying to be somebody that you're not. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Let me illustrate it by... by 
doing this. I'm going to throw up on the screen here a couple different circles. <clears throat> okay, the middle circle, the first circle, is what we are simply going to refer to as the real self. This is who you are. This is your primary identity. This makes up your personality. Okay, this is the truest thing about who you are. Now, as men, one of the things that we struggle with when it comes to our identity is understanding that our identity is received. Our identity isn't achieved. And there are things that may describe you that don't define you. And so there are some things that are true about who you are, but it's not the truest thing about who you are. So in other words, for example, you may be a manager in the workplace. Is that true about who you are? Well, it's true, but is that the truest thing about who you are? No, no, it's not. You're more than what you do. You're more than what you bring to the table in your career. It may be true that you are struggling with porn right now, so you see yourself as nothing but a porn addict. Is that true? Are you bad? Well, that may describe you, but that doesn't necessarily define you because that's not the truest thing about who you are. The truest thing about who we are is who God says that we are. That you are a child of God, that you are a son of God, that you are a daughter of God. That's the truest thing about who you are. And so what we tend to do is we confuse what describes us for what defines us. And so when we tend to get this mixed up, this leads to the next circle. Okay, this next circle is what we refer to as simply shame. Okay, this is how we respond to our brokenness, the guilt in our life. Okay, shame is a tool of Satan because it always comes in the form of lies and accusations. And shame will say, you know, you're nothing more than somebody who's been divorced. You're nothing more than someone who's been to rehab. You're nothing more than fill in the blank with your story, whatever that looks like for you. You're nothing more than a deadbeat dad. And like we said earlier, when you hear these voices of shame for long enough, we start to believe it that it's actually true. And the thing is, you will never live beyond You'll never live beyond the way that you deal with your shame. And so as men, our tendency when it comes to shame is we either hide it, deny it, or suppress it. And when we do that, it ends up spilling out sideways. Then we end up blowing up the most important parts of our life. That leads me to the next circle. When we don't deal with shame in, in a right, healthy way, we then project what's called a false self. Okay, this is how we respond to shame in our life. This is what we do to try to hide the brokenness because we know we're guilty. This is when we put on armor that doesn't belong to us. We use sarcasm. We use addictions. We use humor or some other persona to hide yourself because this is where shame ultimately leads. One way that I put on my false self is I use humor. I don't want people to know the real me because I'm listening to shame. Since I was the youngest of five, I learned at a very young age, obviously, what it took to be noticed. Back when I was a senior pastor, another version of my false self was projecting this successful persona, proving to those around me that I measured up. And so let me, let me ask you, how are you wearing someone else's armor? In what ways do you project your false self and give power to your shame? Why is this a big deal? Why does this matter? What well, matters because of this, that you reproduce who you are, not what you say. You reproduce who you are, not, not what you say. Your kids are watching and learning from you. And if that feels like a lot of pressure, guys, it's because it is. And that means you're paying attention. So David heads to the battlefield with nothing but five stones and a sling. 
Goliath sees this and immediately scoffs and starts trash talking, but he never could have imagined what he'd hear next from this young shepherd boy. Check out verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, look, you come at me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come at you in the name of Jesus, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, Jesus will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that Jesus, that Jesus is Israel, and that all of this assembly may know that Jesus saves not with sword and spear, but the battle, for the battle belongs to Jesus, and he will give you into my hand. So David would go on to take down Goliath in one shot. Just as he said, he cut off Goliath's head, took it to Jerusalem to show off. This was his way of saying, we have defeated the Philistines. Now this is important to note here, okay? David's not the hero of this story. I've heard a lot of messages about David and Goliath, and oftentimes pastors will take this story and apply it like this. You know, if you just, if you just had more faith like David... You can take down the giants in your life. But David's not the main character here. The point of this story isn't, you know, just have more faith. And the scariest thing that you imagine in your life won't ever come true. This story's about Jesus. We're told after the fight, the Philistines fled in fear. And you know what? They didn't flee. They didn't run away because of David. They fled in fear because of Jesus. And when you see Jesus for who he really is, all of a sudden the giants in our life get a whole lot smaller. Let me be clear. We don't follow some weak sissy who came here to merely tell people to play nice on the playground. No, Jesus is our warrior king who isn't afraid of anything or anyone. Even the demons know this. The book of James tells us that, de that the demons know who Jesus is, is and they shudder. Now the Greek word that we translate as shudder literally conveys that moment when you're watching a scary movie and you get freaked out and the hair on your arm starts to stand up. That's what shudder means. And James tells us that's the response that the demons have when they think about who Jesus really is. Are you still struggling to, to see Jesus like this? How about this? The book of John describes the moment when Jesus was arrested right before he was crucified. We're told that a band of Roman soldiers were there to, take, to make the arrest. They approach Jesus when he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane and they ask him, Hey, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Look at John 18 verse 6 for Jesus' response. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now realize that these soldiers were like the special forces, Green Berets, Navy SEALs of their day. The magnitude of Jesus' words were so forceful that they couldn't possibly remain on their feet. This was John's way of illustrating that Jesus was always in control. He wasn't some abducted victim. No, he is a king who gave his life. Now you may say, well, what about the kind, meek Jesus? The Jesus that, that would go on and, and, again, be crucified, put through a fixed trial. What about the Lamb of God, that version of Jesus? Honestly, that's the version of Jesus that we should probably fear most because that's the version of Jesus the demons fear most. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is put on trial. Okay, it's a fixed trial. He knows he's going to lose. 
Peter, one of Jesus' close friends, when they go to arrest him, takes his sword out, cuts off one of the guy's ears. Jesus is like, hey, don't do that. Picks the ear up, puts it right back on. All right, back in place. Oh, we're all good. And so then Jesus gets put on trial. He stands there and he allows himself to be beaten, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to strip naked and humiliated. Now, is that weakness or is that strength? Depends on how you look at it. What I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this, guys. Suppose you go home tonight, and when you walk through the front door, someone's holding your family hostage. And they come to you, and they say, hey, look, someone's going to get beat tonight. It's either going to be you, or it's going to be your family. You get to choose. So what does the strong man do? The strong man takes the beating. He steps in place so that his family can walk away, walk away free. In a similar way, that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He could have saved himself, or he knew he could have saved us, but he couldn't save both. Therefore, he willingly surrendered himself, even though he had control the whole time, knowing that that would give us the opportunity to walk away free. So let, let's kind of wrap all this up and get into some application here. As we've said today, the thing that keeps us men from being the man that God has called us to be is because we see ourselves as a victim. Here's the thing. You can't be a king and a victim. Kings aren't victims. You can be a king, you can be a victim, but you can't be both. Now let's get real. One thing I love about adventure is that we know how to be real here. Real is hard, though. You know that? This has been a really hard lesson for me to learn the past two and a half years ago. M many of you know this because I've talked pretty openly about it. Two and a half years ago, my wife filed for divorce, and I was totally shell-shocked and stunned. I couldn't believe it. And there have been several moments when I thought, this can't be happening to me. I mean, after all, I'm a pastor. I come from a good family. Nobody in my family has been divorced. People like me don't go through this. I refused to file with my wife because I vehemently disagreed with her decision. I believed it wasn't right. The reality of this divorce has kind of been a gradual realization over the span of two years or so for me. It's taken at least this long for me to accept it. And you know what? I've had many people, so many people support me and love me, and I've been told countless times, hey, Patrick, you don't deserve this. You've paid too high of a price. This isn't, this isn't what you signed up for. Cried, I've bargained with God, I've pleaded, I've sat through more counseling sessions than I can count, and if it weren't for prayer, pills, and people, I don't know where I'd be today. <laughs> I've fasted, I've begged God numerous times to intervene and resurrect my broken family, but you know what? That hasn't happened and it's not going to happen. My plan didn't work and my dream failed. I mean, nothing says that I've abdicated my role as a man quite like custody battles and child support struggles that I've had. Now, if I stopped right there, you might be inclined to feel bad for me. Maybe you'd go so far to say that, you know, I was the victim of a bad decision. And the truth is, I'm not a victim. Do you know why the divorce wasn't something that just merely happened to me? Though this has been a really difficult lesson for me to learn, I've had to realize that I'm responsible for it. I could have been a better husband. 
I could have put her before my job on more occasions. I could have prioritized the kids more, more often. I could have done a better job at validating her role as, as mama. I should have loved her more than I did. There's a long list of things that I, I shouldn't have done that I ended up doing. There are a long list of things that, that I didn't do that I should have done. And, but here's the thing. I've had to learn to take responsibility in spite of all the excuses that I create. And if I want to embrace this role as king for the three precious kids that have been entrusted to me, then I need to get over it and I need to take responsibility. Because kings don't make excuses. Kings aren't victims. Instead, kings take initiative. Kings refuse to see themselves as victims regardless of the garbage that they've experienced. Kings follow the king of kings who slays giants and tackles every ounce of brokenness and dysfunction that we bring to the table. He's not afraid of it. So let me end by asking you this. How, how has seeing yourself as a victim hurt the people around you? What wasn't your fault that's now your excuse? Your dad wasn't around growing up, so maybe you withhold affection from your kids. You got addicted because you went through a divorce. Now nobody takes you at your word. You gave it your all, but you got fired anyway. Now it's like walking on eggshells, just being around you because of the anger. You were hurt by her when she broke up with you, so since then it's like a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. You fear being locked down to one woman for the rest of your life, so you refuse to propose. Statistics say that one out of eight men in this room were raped, molested, or sodomized as kids. Almost half have been betrayed by, by their spouse. Now, not to belittle what you've gone through, and I'm so sorry that it happened. But guys, get in line. You're, you're, not, you're not the only one. And I don't buy into the victim mentality. What do I mean? Your fist, your fist didn't decide to just hit the person that you love. Right, your genitals didn't drive to the hotel and choose to have the affair. So many jokes right now. Your words didn't accidentally destroy your son's confidence or your daughter's well-being. You made that choice. The first step to becoming a king instead of a victim is owning your mess. Nobody follows a victim. The confidence, the strength, the fearlessness, and boldness that, comes, that, that we need comes from the same place that David found it when he stared Goliath in the face. And that's Jesus Christ. But you have a decision to make. Will you live as a king or will you live as a victim? Here's the thing. Victims tend to pass on their brokenness to the next generation. Men who see themselves as victims either become passive or become bullies. This is why a lot of the time abusive people have been abused themselves. And so how long will it take your kids to recover from you? Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, you have kings who deal with their pain with courage and in turn break the cycle of generational brokenness. Kings face the reality of their scars and declare the lives of those entrusted to their care will be better. Kings rise above personal pain and they absorb it. That's called sacrifice, which is another word for love. And you know what? Here's the deal. Nobody expects you to be perfect at this. Guys, don't let perfection and idealism keep you from fighting for what's right, true, and best. And the best example I could come up with is, besides myself, is David would grow up to be king over Israel. He made the choice to have an affair, then murdered her husband to cover it up. Even then, David got back up and he kept fighting. Nobody expects you to be perfect. So I have homework. 
for both men and women in here. Okay, first I'm going to talk to the men. You viewing yourself as a, as a victim has affected some area of your life, if not all areas of your life. It's caused you to abdicate your role as king in some way. And this is a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. But, but I want you to pick one area this week that you will intentionally lead forth like a king. Is it with your finances? Is it the way that you treat your wife or girlfriend? Or how about your engagement with your kids? Could you be an employee that actually shows up on time, keeps his promises, and works hard? Guys, I want you to name that area of your life and ask yourself what would change if you started seeing yourself as a king, not a victim in that part of your life. Now, ladies, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Your words matter. We need you. We've been really hard on the men in this series, and for good reason. And I'll just let you in on another secret, that your husband needs you to get off his back and onto his team. He's got his work cut out for him. And so this week, your job, your job is to withhold any and all criticism, as valid as it may be, is to withhold any ounce of criticism and speak life into the area of life that he's working to address. We need your support and encouragement. Criticism and complaining, it, it doesn't work. It's not a good motivation. If you aren't married or you don't have a boyfriend, I want you to identify just one man in your life that you could go out of your way to encourage this week. Maybe it's your dad, your brother, coworker, neighbor, or even maybe someone here. Be a king, be a victim, but you can't be both. Let's pray. Jesus, I can only imagine what a message like this wells up inside a lot of us. The truth is, there's a lot of validity to the scars that we hang on to. But Jesus, I'm asking that you would, first and foremost, challenge and expand our view of who you are because you are strong, you are good, you are so smart. You're our warrior king. And when we live defeated lives, it oftentimes goes back to the fact that we have seen you as someone for who you're not. So would you challenge our view of who you are? And the other thing is, would you give us the courage to address some of the shame in our life? Would you give us the courage to, to address some of the past wounds that have, that have happened to us? Because the reality is, those are the parts of our life that are castrating us and are keeping us from being the man that you have called us to be. And so would you give us the courage to, to face the darkness of our past? Because we want to be a people, we want to be a group of men who refuse to allow our past to define our future. Because what you tell us in your word, and I'm choosing to believe because you know how hard I've struggled with this, and you know how much I don't want to believe this because shame and brokenness and guilt and all that crap, it speaks so loudly into my ear that our worst moment doesn't have to be our defining moment. There's nothing we've done that's bigger than the cross. Would you help us actually believe that? Give us the courage to lead forth in one area of our life this week. Help us to lead forth as a man, as the king that you called us to be. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.